very often the accommodations are not really that big a deal. And if a manager, if you're talking about those type of accommodations and a manager doesn't want to deal with that, frankly, you probably have a bigger problem. Good morning, HR. I'm Mike Coffey, and this is the podcast where I talk to business leaders about bringing people together to create value for shareholders, customers, and the community. Please follow, rate, and review Good Morning HR wherever you get your podcast. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, or at goodmorninghr.com. Increasing numbers of employees are asking employers for workplace accommodations in support of their mental health challenges. In fact, in 2021, 30% of ADA-related discrimination charges brought to the EEOC were related to mental health. Joining me today to discuss the intersection of the Americans with Disabilities Act and mental health is Jeanette Levy. Jeanette is a New Jersey and New York-based attorney helping employers to ensure that they are in the best position possible to avoid the headaches and costs associated with litigation, audits, and employee relations problems. Welcome to Good Morning HR, Jeanette. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. So we could spend eight hours talking about the ADA <laughs> and still have a whole list of unanswered questions and what ifs and everything, but we've got 30, 45 minutes today. So just give me your elevator pitch or your elevator speech of an employer's responsibilities under the ADA. Okay. So under Title I of the Americans with Disabilities Act, which is a title that deals with employment issues, an employer, number one, must refrain from discriminating against qualified individuals with disabilities with respect to hiring, firing, terms, privileges, and conditions of employment. Built into the definition of discrimination is failure to provide reasonable accommodations to such people. So it's a thou shalt not discriminate and thou shalt provide reasonable accommodations. Maybe a little more than 30 seconds. <laughs> no, no, that's great. So let's start breaking that down then. What is a disability under the ADA? So per the ADA, a disability is a physical or mental impairment that substantially limits one or more major life activities. Although the ADA also says that one who has a record of such impairment or who is regarded as having such an impairment is also protected. So the employee doesn't even have to tell me as the employer, hey, I've got this issue. If I perceive or believe, even if they don't have it, I believe they do and I take a discriminatory action against them based on that belief, it's still a violation of the ADA? Possibly, very potentially. Um, if, I, if I treat somebody differently, if I'm an employer and I take an adverse action against somebody because I believe that they have a disability, then yes, there are situations in which that would support a claim under the ADA. And so a major life activity, what, what are we talking about there is, is you know, I, I think of basic stuff like hearing, seeing, the ability to talk, uh, interact with other people. At what point, where does that line draw? You know, what is, what's the bottom metric for a major life activity under ADA? How does that do? How does that happen? <laughs> well, the statute defines a major life activity very broadly. And really, actually, if you don't mind, if I just zoom out a bit more, sure. to say that the real, the intent behind the ADA is inclusion not exclusion. So in other words, get as many people covered as possible. So in other words, as an employer, err on the side of inclusion effectively, especially with the Amendments Act, which the ADAAA, I just refer to that collectively as the ADA. Um, really, what Congress wants us to do is err on the side of inclusion, pretty much assume that there is a disability, and then move to the next step of endeavoring to find a reasonable accommodation. So many disabilities don't require any accommodation. The employee can just do the job and they have to have this, this, this circumstance, but it doesn't affect the job. So when we're looking at how it affects the job and how severe that effect on the job is, that's where we get into 
diagnose or determining what the essential functions of that role are, right? Um, when you're looking at the essential or is, or is essential functions the right measure or, or, or when you're looking at essential functions, how do you, how do you define those? What are those key things where you say, well, we can't have a, a blind truck driver. Um, so there's two questions here. One is for accommodations. It's not just to enable the person to do the essential functions, but it's also so that the person can enjoy the same terms, privileges, benefits, and conditions of employment as someone similarly situated who doesn't have that disability. So an example that I'll often give, and it's not mental health, but it's just to keep things, you know, just for clarity purposes, is that if someone says, listen, I have, you know, an, an issue with maybe walking, and maybe they're hired for a job that has nothing to do with that at all, but they are now going to ask for a parking spot that's closer to their entrance to work. Now, does that necessarily have to do with their essential job functions? No, but it provides them access to the workplace. And so now they can come in and they can perform, they're able to come in and perform their job functions. They're able to enjoy, otherwise enjoy the same terms, privileges, benefits, and conditions of employment. So it doesn't always have to be directly related to the essential job functions. So that's just sort of, again, a little bit of maybe preliminary or zooming out before we get to the question of essential job functions. And the, uh, once that employee, once the employer perceives that this employee may have some disability that's, uh, going to impact their ability to operate and fully participate in the, in the workplace or the employee self identifies, let's just say the employee does self identify as needing an accommodation. That's where the interactive process starts. Um, and this is where I see, I think most employers screw it up. Uh, so will you talk about what the, in the ideal world, what, what does that interactive process look like? I'm going to date myself here with this reference from a Saturday Night Live sketch a long time ago. And and for anybody to whom this doesn't ring a bell, don't make me feel old. Look look this up on YouTube or Spotify or whatever. I tell you what, uh, I will go find it if it's on if it's on YouTube, I will put it in the show notes. So, just look for any sketch by Mike Myers where he does Linda Richmond coffee talk. Of course. It's based on his then former mother-in-law, you know, the stereotypes of, you know, the, the woman with the coffee clutch in her Long Island living room, where she puts out a topic there and says to everybody, talk amongst yourselves, discuss. So that's basically it. You, you, you talk with and you listen to your employee. You have a back and forth dialogue. And I, you know, what's also very important for an employer to understand is, that an employee could in fact be requesting the accommodation and it might not occur to you that that's actually what's happening because the employee is not under any obligation to use any specific buzzwords. They're unlikely to come to you and say, hi, my name is so-and-so and I believe I have a reasonable accommodation within the meaning of the ADA and, and, but, you know, you get, but, but, you know, and, and, and in order to, to perform the essential job functions, I need, they don't usually do that. They might say, listen, um, I, I'm, going to ask, you know, for my concentration, it would be a really good thing for me if I could have something, you know, a white noise machine, or if I could turn off the ringer on my phone for a bit. Um, I need this because I have some issues with my nerves. You know, you might hear something like that, mm -hmm. or they might say something about anxiety, or it could just be, or I have this particular medical condition. And so would it be okay if we did that? And sometimes an employer who isn't trained to recognize that that may be what it is. Might just say, Hey, suck it up. Right. Well, um, so, you know, the employee can say, it's just, you know, I, I, it's just killing me to, uh, you know, I've got these meds and getting here at 8am every day is just killing me. And I'm, I'm you yes. know, that's why I'm late. I'm sorry. I'm late, but, uh, you know, these meds just make it really hard for me to get moving in the morning where the yes. employer may see that as a performance issue. That's right. You know, well, you know, take your meds earlier in the evening or whatever, but you know, it's not my problem. It's yours, buddy. Uh, in reality, just saying, you know, the employees already put them on notice that there's an underlying issue. Now in that, yes. in, go, go ahead, go ahead. No, what I was going to say also, just to add something else in there. So usually what happens is the employee goes to their immediate supervisor 
Now, the request itself, the immediate supervisor really shouldn't be the one handling that request. So the trick is for the immediate supervisor to have enough training to recognize that this is a situation that she or he should now hand off either to HR, if there is an HR department, or a designated point person that has more detailed training as to how to hack, actually handle that request. Because the immediate manager, more often than not, no matter how well-intentioned they are, will usually mess it up. They're going to cause, um, they're going to incur liability on behalf of the company because it's an issue. It's an instance of not knowing what one doesn't know. That's not what the manager's hired to do or be an expert in. That's what HR, the designated point people are for. Yeah. And you hope you've got competent people on that end, uh, uh, you know, and that, that, you know, like you said, the manager knows, Hey, this is something that, you know, this is a situation I need to pass the ball to, you know, to somebody who knows what they're doing. Um, so in that interactive process, how, how detailed can an employer inquire in just talking to that employee about the employee's actual diagnosis? Cause that's what that gives us, especially in the mental health area, that gives us the heebie jeebies. And so, you know, so, so what, do, what's, what's the guideline there? Okay. So we start with the general rule, no fishing expeditions. Um, you cannot ask for the actual diagnosis. Now, the employee may decide to disclose it, or if you're speaking with an employee's healthcare practitioner, the practitioner may disclose it. And in which case, what I generally recommend to the employer is, if you have a diagnosis, if you've received one, document how you got that diagnosis. In other words, saying, hey, it's not my fault I didn't ask. Right. So that's number one. So you can't ask that. You can't get into broad-based inquiries about history or whatever, medical history. Really, it's an, it's so that you have enough information to ascertain that there's a condition here that is likely a disability within the meaning of the ADA. Uh, and then you get into the interactive process really is about, okay, is there a particular accommodation the employees re is requesting? If so, what is it? Can I actually provide that accommodation? Will that accommodation, is it likely to be effective? You are also, as an employer, you can certainly explore alternatives. And if the alternative that you're exploring or even offering, if you can show that that is or is likely to be effective in, in addressing the issue at hand, you can offer that. I mean, if you can provide what the employee is actually requesting, then I would say the best practice is to do that. But you really, what you should be focusing on is more Okay, by reason of whatever you're telling me is is the issue, what essential functions are impacted or what what's getting in your way here, either in performing the essential functions or in enjoying the same terms, privileges, benefits, and conditions as perhaps someone else who might be in that in a similar job, the same job who doesn't have this particular issue. So in that situation where an employee comes and says, hey, I'm sorry, I'm late. I've got this, you know, I'm taking these meds and they just make it really hard to get started in the morning. The accommodation I'd like is just to work remote, uh, you know, full time from home. And the employer may say, well, we can't accommodate that. But what we can accommodate is we can change your work hours. I can, you know, is well, nine o'clock instead of eight o'clock give you time to get up and get rolling and start and start coming in uh, at nine. And, and is that something that'll work? But let's say the employee says, no, that won't work. Uh, is it, is yeah. that the point where we start to get a medical professional involved? If, if, if the employer and employee either don't agree on the accommodation or sometimes let's face it, employees are full of crap and, and they're asking for something that, you know, that, you know, just cause it would be a convenience and it's not really something that, is, uh, you know, uh, nece necessary for them to enjoy the full rights and privileges and, and, and successfully uh, participate in the workplace and do their job. So is that, you know, at some point, what are the guidelines for when we bring a medical professional into the, into the mix? Well, I mean, first of all, speaking with a medical professional, and that can include the employees treating healthcare practitioner, that absolutely um, is it can be an appropriate part of the interactive process. And in fact, I would recommend in most situations, you know, if it's not a very straightforward 
interactive process where you can ask the employee, you know, do you have a treating professional? Would it be, you know, would you be willing, would you give your permission for me to speak with a treating professional? Otherwise, I'm going to ask you to speak with somebody. And then I would say either, ideally, the treating professional, because that's the person who's obviously going to have the history with the employee, know the employee and the specifics of his or her condition the best. But in either case, what I often recommend is provide to the practitioner a job description and discuss really the degree to which, you know, the impairment might impact certain essential job functions and some alternatives if appropriate. So it absolutely is, it's certainly appropriate to speak with a practitioner. And I recommend that whenever that can be done, you know, to do that. Unless, like I said, if if the conversation is pretty, you know, I need this one small thing, it's simple, it, 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 costs nothing or close to nothing, then you probably don't need to do that. Then that's probably overcomplicating the whole process. And in those cases, like the one you mentioned where it's, it's not an essential job function, but the employee has to walk from the big parking lot all the way to the building. And because they're not an executive row or don't have a handicap placard, uh, they, you know, that, that really makes it difficult for them to get into the work, uh, the workspace. Uh, what do you give the medical professional in that situation? So you just, you just write a, a memo to the, you know, for the employee to share with them saying, Hey, right now this employee has to park, uh, you know, a, a hundred yards out from the the workplace. And, and they've said that that's, you know, that's not feasible for them. Give me your feedback as to, you know, the necessity of making an accommodation or how do you approach those kind of situations that aren't just marked in the job description? Well, I mean, with the example that you gave, which admittedly is an example I gave a few minutes ago, um, I would really question in that situation whether it's necessary to get the healthcare practitioner involved because, I mean, the first thing I would be looking at in that situation is, you know what, is there someplace closer? And what's it really going to cost me? Is it really a big deal to just provide that accommodation. And and I would also leave employers with a thought that instead of looking at this, okay, oh my gosh, this is a burden. This is a cost to me. Listen, if it's an employee that whether it's this particular employee you value or you in general, you value your employees, you value attracting and retaining good talent, um, then it's in your interest to look at this and say, can I accommodate this? Do I have to accommodate this should really be more the inquiry should be, okay, how might I be able to help and address this concern that the employee is raising? I will say that I'm not saying that no employees are looking to, quote, game the system. Yes, there certainly are some who are, but I really have seen that most employees, they want to come in and do their job. You know, they're not looking for that. That would be like an employee saying, can I sue? Now, some employees are looking to sue, are litigious. But most employees want to do their job. And I, I would like to think most employers really want to be able to preserve a good working relationship with their employees. And I think that's the way they need to look at this interactive process. Right. There's a there's a business case for doing it. Exactly. Even yes. if the ADA doesn't exist, right? Absolutely. Yes. And so let's say we get to the point where we we reach accommodation. We say, okay, yeah, that's, you know, let, you know, the employer and the employee are on the same, on the same page. We, we implement the accommodation. I think a lot of employers just say, Hey, it's done. And (laughs) I, when I'm working with employers, I'm, I'm always encouraging them to circle back. Is this working for you? Are you getting what you need? Because especially as we talk about mental health, I think people are, after the after the employers come forward, or after the employees come forward and the employers made an accommodation, I think especially with anxiety and folk thing and 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 challenges like that, employees may be less comfortable coming back a second time to say, "Hey, this is still not helping." That's a great point. And when I'm doing trainings or when I am consulting with a client, prospective client, I let them know you are not just because you provided the accommodation. No, you're not done. You have to follow up. Because what if it's not working? 
You think it is because you haven't heard anything, but maybe it's really not. And then you find out there are still problems. And then you decide, well, because there are still problems, now I can discipline or even terminate the employee. And it's no, no, you have to circle back. You speak with the, certainly the immediate supervisor and the employee. If both agree that everything's great now, great. So close it out. You're done. You document that. And if one or both of them say it's not working, then of course you want to look at, okay, well, how and why is this accommodation not working? Does that have anything really to do with the accommodation? Or is there maybe a different issue that has nothing to do with the disability? Um, for that matter, if whether or not it does, okay, if, if it's not working, then yes, you may have to reopen and, and start that process again and try something else or ascertain and document that there is no reasonable accommodation to be provided at this point. And then at that point, if by reason of the condition, the employee is not qualified to do the job, then they're not protected under Title I of the ADA because Title I of the ADA protects qualified individuals with disabilities, meaning that either with or without a reasonable accommodation, they can perform the essential job functions. Is there a dollar threshold for what makes uh, an accommodation reasonable? So you get to, you get for me now, lawyer's stock answer number one, which it depends. There you go. It depends. (laughs) Well, on what does it depend? Lawyer's stock answer number two, circumstances. Mm -hmm. So for example, the size of the company, are we talking about a mom and pop shop that also, because of that, generally, their revenue is going to be less. So what are their financial resources? It's not only the actual dollar amount, the actual cost of the accommodation, but operationally, what will the impact have? So, for example, I, a very common request might be for some time off medical leave. And maybe for whatever reason, FMLA doesn't come into play. Now, especially in a mom and pop shop, there may not, you know, not enough employees for the company to be subject to the ADA. So now you have to look at, all right, what happens now if this person's out on leave? So is there someone else that can step in and do that job? Okay. What if the answer is no? So you have to get somebody. So can you, can you easily find somebody who can perform those functions? Is there some time getting that person up to speed or alternatively, maybe there are people, do you have to now pay overtime? Or are you going to pay a temporary person from a staffing agency? So you see all of these things. And that's why we have to come back with it depends on the specific circumstances. So there might be a dollar amount might be relevant. It might be one factor. It may be the only factor. It depends. Fair enough. And that's what we expect. That's why we pay the lawyers on a case by case basis for their expertise and specific situations. So let's distinguish what's legal and what's a good business decision when we talk about mental health. Under the ADA, what what is a mental health issue that would be would be covered? Well, certain things are enumerated as specifically covered and there are actually some things that are are singled out as not being covered. So essentially a mood disorder such as depression, um anxiety, uh, bipolar disorder, those are covered. Thought disorders, for schizophrenia, delusion, uh, those are definitely covered. In some situations, I would say a personality disorder might also be covered. Panic disorder, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. What specifically is not covered, though, is, believe it or not, kleptomania, pyromania. Oh, okay, well, that makes um, sense, yeah gambling compulsions, certain sexual compulsions are specifically enumerated in the ADA as not covered. But also personality traits are not covered. So in other words, if it's simply a personality trait, this person's always late. Uh, this person is really hard to get along with. They're just a crank pot, for example. If it's not linked to a symptom of 
an actual disorder, then for sure that's not going to be covered. But there are also things, then we also get into the whole issue of undue hardship. If the request by the employee would pose an undue hardship to the company, then at least the the accommodation requested does not have to be granted. So an undue hardship, that can depend on the cost. Uh, that could depend on the operational impact, uh, the specifics of the business itself. So that said, though, if the requested accommodation, that may pose an undue hardship, but that doesn't mean you're off the hook from providing any accommodation, just the one that's been requested. So you still have to look for an alternative. And if and only if you can show, hey, there's no alternative that's going to be a reasonable accommodation under the circumstances, <laughs> then at that point, then you're off the hook. Make sure you document it though. And let's take a quick break. Good Morning HR is brought to you by Imperative, premium background checks with fast and friendly service. If you're an HRCI or SHRM certified professional, this episode of Good Morning HR has been pre-approved for one hour of recertification credit. To obtain the recertification information, visit goodmorninghr.com and click on Research Credits. Then select episode 85 and enter the keyword mental. That's M-E-N-T-A-L. Next Wednesday on March 8th, I'll be hosting a webinar entitled Ethical Considerations in Talent Acquisition. We'll discuss the relationship between individual and organizational ethics and engage in an interactive conversation around a number of common ethical challenges that we face in recruiting, interviewing, and selecting employees. This free webinar is approved for one professional development credit for SHRM certified professionals and one hour of general recertification credit for HRCI certified professionals. You can register for this free webinar at imperativeinfo.com. And if you're listening to this podcast after March 8th, you can still watch the recorded webinar on our website for credit for free. And now back to my conversation with Jeanette Levy. Now for a long time, the general understanding, I think, under the ADA was that a disability was something that interfered with a major life activity on an ongoing permanent basis or consistent basis. Right. Um, but is that still the standard? And because, I mean, there are employees who, you know, individuals, just people, me, you know, I can have, a, a, you know, I can have a, a short period of time where I'm just really not functioning at my best and mentally I'm not there. I'm checked out. I've got stress. I've got anxiety, whatever. That's gotten amazingly better since all my children moved out of the house. But you know, that's always a, Ooh, you know, I'm we've all nice. got those things that are transitory that, that affect us. So at what point is something, you know, is it still the standard? This is going to be something ongoing, uh, mm -hmm. long-term disability, or is this something that, you know, uh, I'm just, you know, we've got a lot of work and it's really stressing me out. I need, I need a mental health day or something. So that's a great question. I'm good at those. What's that? I'm good at the great questions. I just never have the answers. So. Oh, well, I, I have this, I used to have this sign up, you know, my office, I don't know what happened to it where I said, you know, I would say, um, you know, answers, you know, whatever it is, we charge like a quarter and then answers that are require some thought, you know, cost more and then, you know, correct answers or, you know, even a higher charge and dumb looks are free. But um, <laughs> so here's the, here's the issue in, in theory, the general rule is that a condition with a, you know, a short, term impairment that is not expected to have a long-term or permanent effect is theoretically not a disability. But those lines have gotten blurred. Uh, the EEOC, which is the agency in charge of enforcing the ADA, has issued some guidelines where they've kind of said, well, yeah, there could be some conditions that we would think are short-term, but because they substantially limit one or more major life activities, they could be disabilities. So basically, short-term impairments are not disabilities except when they are, which is, you know, really helpful, right? Right. So that gets back to lawyer stock answer number one. It depends. Uh, you know, the general rule would be 
if you're talking about somebody needs time, let's say, again, if we're looking at the um, question of medical leave, um, a, a routine broken leg. So that is not a um, usually considered a long-term disability. So um, on the other hand, it certainly impacts walking, which is a major life activity. But I think if we're saying, hey, you need somebody needs two or three weeks, you know, because of the broken leg. So arguably, you could say that short term, that's not really what the ADA had in mind. Then again, the ADA wanted us to err on the side of inclusion. And then again, we get into also the business argument for providing the accommodation, albeit temporarily, and even if it's not technically a disability. Then we also get into the question of, might there be a similar state law that broadens that definition? Okay, so that also is a reminder to employers to reach out to your friendly local employment council, someone that's located in each state where you have employees working, because we right now are talking about federal law. And that's the floor. States can impose their own laws, which essentially raise that floor, that minimum obligation. So to get back to the short term, yes, there are times where something that we think is short term might actually get in there, you know, and get included in that definition of a disability that should be accommodated. And again, I would say the general rule is err on the side of inclusion and if you really feel strongly you shouldn't have to, then you may need to look and speak with your friendly local employment council about whether there's possibly an argument for undue hardship. And even if on its face it seems to the employer to be short term, this isn't an ADA issue. This is just an employee life circumstance that, you know, that'll go away uh, short, you know, in, 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 due, in due time still go through the interactive process, right? We want to document that we've, we've really investigated this, send them to, you know, either get information from their, their medical professional or send them to your medical professional and, and, and get that information. So you've got something other than the armchair psychology of your HR professional who may or may not be able to, you know, evaluate that correctly. Well, yes. And actually to, get into that because I, I'm not sure I addressed that part of your question. You know, somebody's just, they're stressed because of circumstances that are going on right now. So there's a few things. First of all, that person could very well have an underlying condition. We don't know about it because they haven't shared it because they've never felt they've had reason to. Or as far as anybody knew, even the employee themselves, they didn't have such a condition but maybe now, you know, maybe there was a predisposition and maybe those circumstances are triggering a condition that could be more long term. So that we saw that particularly during the height of the pandemic. We saw a lot of that. So here's an example. I have told employers that the, as a general rule, I'm afraid you know, with respect to, especially before we had vaccines and treatments for COVID, you know, I really don't want to come into work. I'm afraid. I'm afraid of getting COVID. We all okay. heard that. Yeah. Yeah. And so then you have to figure out, okay, what do I do with this? In general, I'm afraid with nothing more you could say is not enough of a reason, but wait a minute. Why is this employee afraid? Has there actually been COVID in the workplace? Yes. Okay address it then. No. Okay. Is there a likelihood? Are you in an industry where there, where that is more likely than not? Okay. What if there isn't? Maybe this employee does have an underlying anxiety or panic disorder. So you got to be very careful. And that's why if you are the immediate supervisor, when you get confronted with that by the employee, get that designated point person involved, HR or whoever the designated point person is, or get on the phone with your friendly local employment council you don't want to mess that up. And it's easy to mess up. So when we start talking about accommodations for mental health issues, I mean, some obvious ones that, you know, we've kind of already touched on are work site. You know, are you going to work from home or work uh, hybrid or, you know, fully remote or whatever? Scheduling, 
you mentioned leave. Um, any special considerations around those kind of accommodations uh, other than just coming to an agreement with the employee and figuring out what, what, what the employer, what's reasonable for the employer given their circumstances to accommodate is? That's a really, really broad. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, obviously there's a lot around remote work right now. Mm-hmm. And you had a lot of employers who were certainly before the pandemic much more rigid and saying, no, you have to be in the office. This job cannot be done anywhere else. And lo and behold, we found that that was in many cases not so true. Right. But some of that can also depend on the employee themselves. Um, is this somebody that can work with less um, in-person supervision? So that that's appropriate. Then you're also looking at something else, which is seemingly unrelated, but not so unrelated, which is, okay, is this an employee who is overtime exempt or not? If they're not, do you have a way of keeping track of the hours worked versus not worked? So you have to think about that too. Yeah. And that's something I think a lot of employers are screwing up right now uh, with remote employees in general, just yes. uh, not doing a great job of tracking time for non-exempt employees. Yeah. So the other thing is if an employee asks to work remotely, again, a lot of times you really need to ask why and what is the real issue here? And again, if it's the example you gave that because you know, I can't get myself moving until such and such hour, then a better question to ask or a better accommodation to explore might be adjusting the work schedule. Can that happen? And say, all right, which would be more difficult, adjusting the work schedule or allowing the employee to work remotely? And remotely doesn't always have to be from home. A lot of employees are asking for it from home. And then you have to look at, all right, how feasible is it? It's not just in general working off premises, but it's this particular employee. And what is home for them? What is their home environment? Is there somewhere where they can actually do that job where they are free of distractions? So there's a lot there. This is a very, so much of employment law is nuanced because first of all, you're dealing with people. People don't exist in vacuums. And so the issues that impact people don't. So you mentioned earlier, like a white noise machine for somebody who's finds that they're more easily distracted through the day and as a, as an accommodation. So um, what other kind of accommodations do you see being made when somebody's actually going to come into the workplace uh, to to help support somebody's uh, you know employees' mental health uh, and still help them you know perform their 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 role. Well, that just depends depend- on the the circumstance, I guess. It depends on the specific mental health issue. So if we want to go with either concentration, mm-hmm. so white noise could be one thing, or letting them work for a certain amount of time, maybe with the ringer to the phone turned off or a certain amount of time where maybe um, they have a few hours where they don't have to answer the emails right away. Maybe it could even just be, even if it's just spend a few minutes, help them break down a project into manageable pieces. Those are some some, um, possibilities. Very often the accommodations are not really that big a deal. And if a manager, if you're talking about those type of accommodations and a manager doesn't want to deal with that, frankly, you probably have a bigger problem. You've got and a leadership that, issue. Right. Yes. It's just, I see you smiling at that. Yes. Yeah. Now your bigger issue, your bigger problem is you might have the wrong person in that managerial position. And sometimes that does come out in the context of a reasonable accommodation request. And in particular, when it's a mental health issue. And that's also why it's really good for at least some basic training for managers, not only to recognize when something may be a reasonable accommodation request, but to also be sensitized to certain issues when there's a potential mental health issue, to be able to recognize that this may be the case. Uh, Or similarly, when we get even further into the mental health issues and we might be, God forbid, worrying about a bullying or workplace violence issue, potentially. 
to be able to recognize signs early is indispensable in my opinion. And that, that manager, that leader's main job should be to create a productive workplace and to incentivize and motivate employees and, 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 you know, support an environment where people deliver their best. And if they're not doing that, if they, if the manager's not creating that environment, if, if the managers, you know, then they're missing the whole business case behind why we have leadership in the first place and, and why we, you know, we want to help employees be productive. And I think a lot of, you know, we see a lot of managers who fail to do that. Yes. But I would go further because I, um, I, I, I'm a very big fan of the big picture and I'll use the phrase zoom out very often. And I think we actually have to zoom out a little further on that one. And that is that, you know, the managers you're usually, when you are talking about managers right now, that implies either like a first line manager or a middle manager. So we've got to look to the leadership to say, all right, what kind of managers do you want? Who are you hiring as managers? All too often employers hire into managerial positions, someone who was in the position below that and did well. Right. And that has nothing to do with managerial skills. So a great example would be you had a great salesperson, you make them a sales manager. Right. It's a different skill set. And so most, I would go as far as to say many, if not most managers are hired into the position and don't really have managerial skills. They can be learned. And I generally will recommend to employers to invest in some management training for managers, even if they have managerial experience before this, the job that you're hiring them into. And I would also say that most training should not be a one and done. There should be some periodic refresher training and maybe some resources where those managers can turn when they have questions, get some guidance. Otherwise, hey, we gave you this training. Bye. Have a good time. Yeah, that's not going to be very effective. Yeah. If there's a recurring theme across most of the episodes I've done, and this is episode, I think, 85 of, of this podcast, it is that just because somebody is a good operational person at a certain level, just making them a manager without investing in the training and the coaching that they need to be successful and have the skills to do that uh, is a, a recipe for a disaster. And it comes up over and over. Yes. Uh, and I see it in employee relations investigations. I see it all the time. And uh, but we keep doing it. Uh, yes. You know, he's a nice guy and he's a really good technician. Uh, and so let's make him a manager. Well, being a nice guy or you know, being a great technician has almost nothing to do with leading people and, and incentivizing and motivating and, uh, you know, helping them be successful, others be successful. Very true. One last accommodation that comes up is uh, emotional support animals. <laughs> and, yeah. and I know, you know, you probably up New Jersey, New York up there and in, in, in the, in the great blue part of the country, there's probably one on every desk, but down here in Texas, it makes people crazy. Uh, and I, I hear from, uh, managers who are, you know, they want to bring their, their chinchilla to work or whatever. <laughs> um, so talk about emotional support animals and when that's a legitimate request and what, how an employer can fairly, you know, accommodate that in a way that that makes sense. Uh, and again, I know it's going to come back down to what's the business environment, but you know, just kind of, if I was the employer, yes. what, what would you walk questions? Would you walk me through in determining if somebody's request for an emotional support animal uh, is reasonable? Well, okay. So what's the job in question and yes, what's the environment and you know, well, what kind of sport animal are we talking about? So by the way, there's two different types when it's animals in the workplace. There's service animals and there are support animals. The service animal actually does something for the employee. So the probably the example that would most frequently come to mind, which would not be for mental health, but the seeing eye dog. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's clearly an animal that that's a service animal. It does something for the employee. But and it's specifically trained to do that. Exactly. But there are service animals. So, for example, somebody with an anxiety or panic disorder if it's an animal 
say it's a dog, not a very big dog, whatever, but a dog that is trained to sense the onset of an anxiety attack and retrieve medication to bring to the employee to take in time to fend it off. That's a service animal. Now, a support animal doesn't really do anything, but the mere presence is calming in some way. Now, then the question is, can it be any animal? Theoretically, maybe, although I think an employee would have a really tough time making the case for, say, a support elephant. Mm -hmm. So I think we've got to be reasonable here. I mean, I know we do. Uh, one time I do remember writing for my blog post something about a mini horse or a mini pig, and I actually got a conference. Does this really happen? I said, well, all right, it's not something that happens all the time or necessarily a lot, but yes, it can happen. So I would say in general, the smaller the animal, the better. If it's in an office, but we're not talking about something that's like a really stuffed shirt sort of place, um, if it's someone, let's say, okay, you know, what do we do about like when the animal has to adhere to the take care of business? Yeah, of nature, right? Is this going to be messy? Is this going to be smelly? How much is this going to be disruptive to other employees and to operations in general? And uh, okay, what are we saying this animal is going to do, or what is it? Or what sort of support? How is this really helpful to the employee? And again, yes, speaking with a healthcare practitioner could be very helpful here. Is there something else that could address this same issue short of the support or service animal that might work better for the employer? So how, how often, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, that's just, you see that this is the interactive process. Yeah. You see how nuanced it can get and that where it goes, you know, the answer to one question may depend, you know, the, or the questions may depend on the answer to a previous question. So um gets back to, it depends. Yeah, no, that's fair. Uh, how often do you see an employee ask for an accommodation and then you send them to, you give them the ADA paperwork, you send them to the medical professional and the medical professional disagrees with the employee's claim or accommodation request, because I think that's, I can't, I, you know, I've got a great relationship with my doc and, and, uh, and if I went to him and said, Hey, I need this, you know, and I want this. If I had anything that was even tangential to, to what I'm claiming, he'd probably say, yeah, fine. Okay. I'll do that for you. Um, and so how often do you even see, do you ever, do you ever see a, 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 somebody's own medical professional disagree with them? Occasionally, not necessarily in so many words, more often than not, the medical professional, particularly in mental health mm -hmm. is what I've seen is they will back the employee, especially I get back to time off a lot. Cause that does come up a lot in mental health issues if the employee is feeling, hey, I can't take the stress of the job, more often than not, the mental health professional is going to err on the side of caution and say, I recommend this person have some time off. It, it, it's in the, in the instance of a mental health issue, I don't see it as much where the mental health or where the professional is going to say, no, I don't agree. No. I think you really see that more when it comes to issues that are closer to physical where they might say, okay, based on what I know and what I've seen, there's no reason this person should not be able to do whatever. But you know what? I'd feel more comfortable if I get the person back in to see me and I'll let you know if there's a change of circumstances. And we can always, we make an accommodation. Let's say it is a short-term accommodation. Okay, yeah, you need some time off right now. Hey, I totally get it. Take, take, you know, either reduced hours for a little while or a few days off or whatever we come to agreement. We can always revisit that in the future. If it becomes, if it comes back up again, okay, well, we talked about it originally for this period of time. Now you're asking for it again. Now that's really beginning to change the work hours. And now, you know, maybe you're, you're below full time. And so that's going to affect benefits and things like that. Uh, we can always 
restart that accommodation conversation as as it un- unfolds on, from it's not you know set in stone to the employee's advantage forever is it no because and and it's not supposed to be because circumstances change and that can also mean that the circumstances on the employer's side that might have rendered the accommodation reasonable before have now they've changed such that maybe it isn't reasonable because whether an accommodation is reasonable does in fact depend on the circumstances. So I, you've given me way more of your time than I, than, than you bargained for, I think, but I appreciate it. What's uh, the one thing you'd like employers to take away from our conversation about mental health in the workplace generally? Well, I would say, so I think what happened with the pandemic is that it's come much more to the surface. The issue was, was it there before? Yes, but it's not going away. And I would say that an employer who kind of brushes it off or ignores it does so at their peril. And it may very well be, you know, especially if you have somebody who's been doing this for a long time, managing a lot of people for a long time, and their gut is, oh, this person's pulling my leg. Okay, I hear you. And you may very well be right, but go through these steps anyway, because I would say think of it as you you never know if the employee in front of you is somebody who is going to file an EEOC charge, is going to sue or do whatever. So you want to go through the steps and document it and think of it as creating a time capsule for some future unknown person who may be looking later at everything to figure out what probably happened if there are any allegations. Because it's not enough that you know and that you could, that maybe you're right. Because if you cannot prove that, it almost doesn't matter. So it's just do it anyway, basically. Follow the process. Yep. Well, thank you again for joining us. That's all the time we have. But uh, I'm going to make sure we put all your contact info in the show notes and on the website. So if anybody wants to reach out with, to you directly, your blog is full of, of good articles on this and other topics. So we'll make sure that's all linked in there too. Uh, I appreciate you being with me uh, here, Jeanette. Thanks for having me. And thank you for listening. You can comment on this episode or search our previous episodes at goodmorninghr.com or on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. And don't forget to follow us wherever you get your podcast. Rob Upchurch is our technical producer, and you can find him at robmakespods.com. And thank you to Imperative's marketing coordinator, Marianne Hernandez, who keeps the trains running on time. And I'm Mike Coffey. As always, don't hesitate to reach out if I can be of service to you personally or professionally. I'll see you next week. And until then, be well, do good, and keep your chin up.